0: For Radio M.D. on AM 860, the answer. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that like getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. Family, That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your Radio M.D., He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, the answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio
1: MD. Good morning, everybody. Here I am, Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. And you can reach us at 877-969-8600. That's 877 969 8600 So if you want to join the show, this is Talks Radio, and it is interactive. Feel free to give me a shout. Uh, I think that we've got some big diplomacy Meets coming up. Uh, Pompeo was over powwowing with the North Koreans and Trump's been hammering away at the Chinese trying to get them in line so they'll get the North Koreans in line. It looks like it's working at this point, but we don't know. The South Koreans are nervous about this. They don't believe that the North Koreans are sincere in their commitment to uh, disarmament, that is nuclear disarmament on the – on the uh, peninsula, the Korean Peninsula, by the way, is marked by the Yalu River, which is the boundary between China, uh, the state of China that it bounds, is called Manchuria, and so the Korean Peninsula is comprised of North and South Korea. The Yalu River is an interesting river. There's a big city called Daedong at the mouth of the Yalu, where it empties into the into the uh, Gulf between the Korean peninsula and China. And it's a a hot tourist spot for the Chinese. The Chinese are more affluent now and they're traveling more. And so they go up there and they take these riverboat cruises or, uh, drop a nickel in the, in the periscope, so to speak, or the binoculars that are on the, on the shoreline there. And they can peer into North Korea a little ways and, they're fascinated because they're looking back at themselves in time. They're looking at back at what it was like when Mao was in power in China. And so they're very fascinated by it. And most of the Chinese I've talked to thought the North Koreans, at least the North Koreans that that are the spokespeople, Kim Jong-un and his his inner circle, he thought they all thought that they were crazy. They thought that Kim Jong-un was crazy. I don't know if he's crazy or not. It doesn't really matter to me. But what I'm fascinated with and interested in is the diplomacy, the diplomatic aspects of this and the dollar diplomacy that uh, the Trump administration is using, uh, saying to the Chinese, we're going to start a trade war. That's not an accident that this is being uh, ramped up just as we're trying to put pressure on North Korea to disarm, to denuclearize, so to speak. And so the the Chinese obviously are – they're getting in line because they called Kim Jong-un to Beijing and had to sit down with him and said, you know, if you want our support, here's what you got to do because we don't want to get the Americans mad at us. They're a good trading partner and basically you're you're just uh, sucking on the tit and you're not sending anything back. Uh, you don't have anything really to offer us because the only big export from North Korea is coal which the Chinese have used for their uh, their power plants, but they can find other sources just as we have. They can switch to natural gas. I'm sure they have tons of reserves, and they're probably working on that anyway. So the relevancy of the relationship with North Korea to China is only as a buffer state, and you have to stop and think after Xi, their, their president, has traveled all over the world and spoken with leaders from here, there, and everywhere. You have to wonder if he isn't looking at south korea and saying maybe we're riding the wrong pony here south korea is vibrant and prosperous it's it's added greatly to the chinese technical industry the south koreans are are just amazing in their ability to take something, reproduce it and make it better and uh, innovate on it. And they're at the leading edge of a lot of technology. And they're partnering up with different American corporations and universities to develop everything from uh, intelligent robots, if there is such a thing, to microchips, to uh, radar defenses, uh, to high-tech instrumentation for our warships and warplanes. So uh, I think the Chinese are, are waking up to the fact that if they're going to continue to play with the big boys, one of them being us, is that they're going to have to abide by some of the rules that we are insisting on. You say, well, where did all this come from anyway? Well, our diplomacy has been in place, although it's been uh, manipulated and changed and revamped and the philosophies and the Goals over time, over since the uh, found, founding of the Republic in 1787-88-89. Probably the biggest change that happened in the 20th century was Woodrow Wilson and his moral diplomacy. Now, you, you probably don't know much about this, because most of us don't really sit down and study diplomacy. We just want to know, what are the results? And, and that's understandable. That's the bottom line for most of us, we're a very practical people. But there are a lot of people that still feel that moral diplomacy is a necessary and integral part of our relationship with the rest of the world because it projects not only what we have but who we are and what our morals and values are. And what President Woodrow Wilson said in 1912 was that we should support countries with democratic governments and help them to become economically uh, prosperous – and robust and stronger and to economically injure non-democratic countries. Uh, of course, we want to help countries that are developing their democracies. And the long-term goal from Woodrow Wilson's point of view was to increase the number of democratic nations in the world. And remember, this was 1912. So in 1914, World War One broke out. President Wilson tried to keep us out of the war, but in 1917, he had no choice because American ships were being uh, attacked by German submarines and being sunk, and so we entered World War I under his uh, watch. And after the war, he tried to get the League of Nations going. It was his idea, and it actually was formed, but he ran into a little problem, the U.S. Senate. Uh, The Senate was predominantly Republican. They were not happy with with Wilson, they didn't like his, his nation building, if you want to call it that, his involvement in, in international politics. They wanted him to finish the war and come back to the United States and concentrate on home. But Woodrow Wilson was an idealist. He was a former college professor, and he believed that we had not only a physical and economic but also a moral charge to – share what we have and change the world through his idea of uh, moral diplomacy. But he was checked at the Senate. The Senate has to approve all treaties, takes a two-third majority in the Senate. So you really have to have something that everybody's in agreement with, and we haven't had many treaties because of this. We had a treaty in the 1790s uh, where we aligned ourselves with the English, the British, and the Napoleonic Wars, and we didn't have another treaty for – 150 years. So we have been very uh, judicious in our use of this power, and our our Senate has been very judicious in its acceptance of, of policies and rejection of policies. So Wilson's diplomacy replaced the dollar policy, the dollar diplomacy of Howard Taft, which highlighted the importance of economic support to improve ties with other nations and to encourage trade. So we have been in this tug of war for the past 100, 150 years, whether we should be on the moral high ground or whether we should be looking at the economic aspects of it. So the dollar diplomacy is what Trump is predominantly putting forward, but Hopefully, and we think that, that he is also moral and that he is in support of democracies. And it looks to me like from what he's saying that his general philosophy is that democracies are better than, uh, than dictatorships and oligarchies and communism and fascism and all the things that we think I've an associate with being anti-American, being the antithesis of our exceptionalism. As a country that's leading the world into a new era of democracy and self-determination and uh, prosperity, and a lot of people will argue with me and say, oh, we're not doing anything, and my sisters in particular. Let me tell you, they got it down pat. I had my cousin here. I hadn't seen her for a decade my cousin, Rachel, what a, what a great cousin she is. She's always been the favorite member of the family for me. I mean, I love my sisters, but I'd rather sit down and talk to Rachel. She's, uh, educated and, uh, wide, widely diverse in her, in her ethnic and, uh, religious and idealistic backgrounds. Her, her training was as a mathematician and, uh, she raised a big family. She's got a big brood. She was Jewish, converted to Christianity. Uh, but uh, like me, she has more of a pantheistic view of the world that, or the universe, that the universe is infinite. And so the universe must be God or bosons, particles or whatever. But it, it's fun to sit down and talk to her. But even she is a, a disliker of the president. Well, he is bombastic. And I can see how a lot of people – uh, perhaps women more than that than men would say they don't really have any respect for him. He's, he's a showman, but that's okay. If he has a mix of the dollar diplomacy, that is, he will reward countries that will trade fairly with us along with the – Woodrow Wilson's moral diplomacy, which says that we're going to favor democracies over non-democracies, then I'm all for that. I, I don't think that we can have it all one way or the other, especially as the economies of the world become more and more intermeshed. So American exceptionalism is the idea that the United States is different from other countries and has a specific mission to spread liberty and democracy and free trade around the world. I think free trade is the cornerstone here because trade precedes everything else. If you want to get your ideas and your morals and your values into another culture, the way to do it is to trade with them. And that has been proven over and over and over throughout history. I mean you can go in and conquer them and force it on them, but that's uh, not what we as a people think is the appropriate way. We would rather – convince people, other nations, that what we have is of value and that liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, populism, free trade, all these things are vital to the individual as well as the national growth of any country, of any people. We can trace this back to the 1830 to 40 era. There was a a French philosopher named Alex de Tocqueville And he was perhaps the first person who came and wrote about the United States historically and also injected into it some of his ideals of of philosophy. And he noted that the United States was exceptional in the way that it was formed. We did not come out of a uh, constitutional monarchy. Uh, We're not a parliamentary government. We never had a king. We never had an emperor. We eschewed all that, and even Washington at the end of the Revolutionary War uh, in the little tavern in in Manhattan in the financial district, and you can still go there. It's still there. He addressed his senior officers and brought them to tears, and they all wanted him to become the king, and he said, gentlemen, we didn't fight this war just to throw away all of the ideals that we fought for. This is what we fought for. We fought for a democracy, and that's what we're going to have. And so this ideal has come not only from the people who fought the Revolutionary War, but from the leadership, from Washington down, Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Monroe and all of our presidents and Henry Knox and all of the founding fathers, all of the people who were involved in – and. and uh, it's important that we remember that and that we maintain that as we go into the world, and, and I think that we're mixing both our idealisms of democracy with the realisms of we're not going to implement democracy in North Korea tomorrow, and going to war in North Korea would risk bringing in both China and Russia into a conflict because Russia has a a border with North Korea and China has a big border with North Korea. Russia has a little strip of land that cuts Manchuria off from the Pacific Ocean. And, uh, you know, we don't want to do that. We would rather convince people to join us in our effort to make a safer and healthier and happier world by diplomacy and uh, aid and Debate, verbal debate uh, as to what is the best way to govern and be governed, and you know I think that the Chinese people are well aware that their government is totalitarian in respect in a respect, and that the United States is different. I don't think they know the the depth of it, but certainly the people who have a college education and have had some exposure to the outside world they certainly know. And I talked with a few Chinese while I was there last summer, and I was surprised to hear them say some of the things they said, and they were critical of their government. And they were very uh, um, insightful into the good and bad points of Mao, who led them through the Great Revolution and kicked out all the foreign powers, but who didn't know the first thing about ruling a country, and the country was starving off and on throughout his rule. But it's fascinating to see, and I think that part of that is because we have been pushing for our thoughts and our ideals and our way of life to be disseminated throughout the whole world. And I'm I'm a personal believer that the best way to see people achieve their maximal potential is to allow them to do what they're good at and to be what they are. Does that mean that everybody can go out and do what they want? And if you're a good robber, we should get out of the way and let you rob us. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that within the context of a morality of what we perceive as right and wrong, that as long as we're doing the right thing and pursuing our own personal goals, as well as fulfilling our own personal potential, then I think we're on the right road and we're doing the right thing. Now, did did uh, the philosophy of Woodrow Wilson preclude intervention, preemptive intervention in different countries? No, he was very active with our military in uh, Central America, Latin America, Haiti, and uh, uh, in Mexico, and and he cut off aid to one of the Mexican presidents and regimes because they could take they had taken it by force. Mexico had been in the throes of Upheaval since they broke away from the European powers and they had had one revolution after another. It's taken 100 years to get them calmed down, but they're calmed down now, and part of that is because of the pressure that we have put on them over the, over the past 200 years, 150 years. And I think it's important for us to remember that we do have that ability and we do have that power and we do have a moral imperative to project that on the world. Does that mean that we have to go in and change everybody and be a nation builder? No, I'm not saying that. But uh, what I am saying is that the more I travel around the world, the more I see how much people everywhere look up to us and count on us to set the example and to intervene and to be there as we were in Syria recently because of the chemical attacks. Some people say, well, we didn't go far enough. Others say, well, we shouldn't be doing anything there, let them kill each other. We have, in my opinion, my humble opinion, a moral duty, a moral obligation with our foreign policy to make sure that treaties that we have signed, such as the non-use of chemical weapons, that that be uh, upheld and be uh, abided by. And if you don't abide by it, then there should be consequences. Now you we say well why didn't we bomb Russia because they're probably behind this whole uh, chemical weapons deal in 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 Syria and we have to inject some reality into this if we bomb the russians they're going to go to war with us and that would be a big war the europeans would be upset although the europeans would like to see the russians taken down a couple of notches i'm sure that they're they're not looking forward to or relish, rel- relishing another world war world war 3 and it could certainly escalate into uh, something very damaging to all parties. But I think that we are putting pressure on, we're putting economic sanctions on the Russians, and they are paying a price for this. And I think that they are rallying behind Putin, their president, because he is preaching a nationalistic and xenophobic message to his people, And saying that it's us against the world and we're still great and I'm here for you and you're here for me. Oh, by the way, you know, we've killed a few hundred Russians in Syria. I was talking with one of the guys in the lunchroom who is an ex-Marine captain. And he went to a speech uh, given by uh, a current military man at a reunion of their, uh, their group, their Marine group in the area. And uh, he said, you know, we have guns. There's a Marine battery in Syria and they fired 21,000 rounds <laughs> in the past six months into the Syrian conflict, 21,000 rounds. How many guns was it? I don't know. He said it was less than 10. It was unbelievable. So we are there and we do have boots on the ground. People say we don't have boots on the ground. How are we going to accomplish anything? But how much of a commitment do we want to make and What will the world tolerate and what are the greater uh, threats at this point and what are the greater goals? Is the greater goal here in terms of diplomacy, maintaining a relationship with the Chinese and denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula? Or is it stopping the Assad regime in Syria from continuing to commit the atrocities that they have? Well, I think it's pretty easy to see that the guy with the nuclear weapons is going to be (laughs) the more important item to address. So we're going to have to be careful about how much we step into the Syrian conflict without getting the Chinese and, and more of the Russians mad at us. So I think that we need to step back a minute and the president's right not to commit a large amount of troops in that area. And that's part of our diplomatic mission in the world is to use our resources, not only our trading and financial resources, but also our military resources judiciously and in a way that gives us an opportunity to have the greatest effect on the world with the least amount of damage to all of us. Certainly those of us who live on, in the United States and hopefully the rest of the world as well. But again, I got to tell you, it—it it, it just it's humbling when I have somebody from Germany come into my office, a family and say how grateful they are, and they just can't believe how much we are willing to do without any uh, expectations of repayment for the the military and uh, the financial aid that we put forth into the world and in our efforts to keep peace. And I know that a lot of people say, why should we be the cop? Because there's nobody like us. This is American exceptionalism, and it's not going away. Every time we see threats to any of our Bill of Rights uh, to the First Amendment, the Supreme Court says, you can say what you want as long as you don't incite a riot. You can preach hate. And there was a Nazi rally somewhere, I think in Atlanta this weekend and Nazi march and with the SIG Heil and the straight arms and all that. And of course, I'm sure there were a lot of people standing on the sidelines that wanted to kill them, but that's their right. And I don't agree with it. And they had cops there protecting them. So it's important for us to ensure that what we have will continue to persist because, our exceptionalism is important it's and i think that part of the problem with people is that most of us don't have the opportunity to travel abroad and see the world although that's changed considerably uh in the past 50 years i mean when i was a kid to go on a cruise ship would have would have been uh, the ideals of a multimillionaire. But now people can travel on a cruise ship to the Caribbean, to the Bermuda. Uh, if you can afford an airplane ticket over to Europe, you can get a, an inside cabin and cruise the Mediterranean or the Baltic. So there's a lot of opportunities for us to interact with the world and to see what the rest of the world is like. Now, not everybody is as chit-chatty as I am, and not everybody has that ability to – blend in and talk wherever they go and eat whatever's offered. A lot of people find that difficult, so I understand that. And I'm I'm not saying that you should uh, overnight change who you are. That's not going to happen. But certainly we should read and listen to what the rest of the world has to say. And I don't mean the liberal press in Europe or the anti-American press in the Middle East. I mean the people who live day-to-day lives like you and me it's important for us to have an understanding of who it is we're dealing with around the world. And, and I'm, I was in Northern Germany, we were on a cruise and we went into, in, in Kiel, which is the port city in Northern Germany on the Baltic sea. And that's where the U-boats, the German submarines went out of during World War II. That was their base. And I was fascinated with that. And I actually went out to, we rode bicycles around the, uh, around the inlet, and it was about a 10, 15-mile bike ride out to the monument to the guys that died fighting for Germany as submariners, and they had about a 75% mortality rate. Whether you agree or disagree with their philosophy, I mean, my goodness gracious, you'd have to be crazy or really in love with your country to make the kind of commitment where you knew that you only had a one in four chance of making it back home so that to me was pretty or a one in three chances it may be that was pretty amazing at any rate I went into a pharmacy because I needed uh, an inhaler got a touch of exercise induced asthma and uh, the pharmacist spoke a little English and I said I needed my inhaler that I was a doctor I showed her my medical license and she said well really you're supposed to have a German doctor signed the prescription. I said, I, I realized that and I apologize. And I'm so sorry, but I'm here for just six, eight hours. And uh, I want to go out and see the, the Memorial at Lebeau to the Submariners. And so with a little back and forth and talking with her supervisor, she said, we'll do this. That's not a problem. I'll give it to you. We don't have the exact brand that you have, but we'll give you what we got. And I said, that's great. That works. It's all the same basically anyway. And so she said, no problem, and she's ringing me up, and she looked up, and she said, I'll sell it to you on one condition. And that, this was before the president presidential election had taken place, uh, which Trump won. And she said, I'll sell it to you if you promise not to vote for Donald Trump. I said, OK, I promise. Sometimes – in the game of life, you got to tell a little white lie so you can get where you're going. She said, "No, no, I'm serious." I said, "I really." She said, "I really want." I said, "I promise on my mother's grave." And that sold her. And so she gave me the the uh, inhaler. But I walked away and I, I thought, "My goodness gracious! Here's a pharmacist in northern Germany. She's probably never been to the United States." And she is so deeply involved in our politics and our way of life and what's happening that she's already decided on who she's going to vote for for president and she can't vote. So it's fascinating to see the tremendous effect that we have on the world. And this goes back all the way to what George Washington said in his farewell address, that among other things, we should be Uh, uh, good tradesmen, good faith, and uh, display justice towards all the nations, cultivating peace and harmony with all, and that we should not uh, have what he called inveterate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments for others. Of course, the Democratic-Republicans under under, uh, Jefferson and Madison and Monroe, they hit the ceiling because they wanted to have a passionate attachment to the revolutionary French government and the the uh, sage of the revolution, young Hamilton, he said the French Revolution will end in a new Napoleon, a new dictator, a new Caesar rather, who was Napoleon. And so this has been going back and forth and we've been tugging at it, trying to decide which side is right. And of course, if you say, you're a Republican and you're for this. The Democrats are going to take the opposite side just because, uh, the, the democratic Republicans feared an alliance with great Britain and the federalists feared an alliance with any of the powers that were fighting in the European war at that time. So it's, uh, It's been going on, and it continues to go on, and we're still debating the same things over and over and over again. When I come back, I'll let you know how the 20th century shaped up, so hang in there. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and again, we're online, and we're also on the phone, 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. Give me a call, and we'll listen to what you have to say about our diplomacy. I'll be right back.
2: With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. President Trump says, quote, things are going very well as he prepares for an expected summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Mr. Trump and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis have spoken with their South Korean counterparts after the historic meeting between leaders of the two Koreas. Mattis and the South Korean minister says they're committed to a, quote, diplomatic resolution that achieves complete verifiable and irreversible denuclearization of North Korea. Meanwhile, South Korea's president says North Korean leader Kim Jong-un might be willing to discuss normalizing relations with Japan as well. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo urging other countries to pressure Iran over its missile program. He's also urging Saudi Arabia and its neighbors to resolve a long-festering dispute with Qatar, which U.S. officials say Iran is exploiting. This is SRN. NEWS.
1: When I need x-rays, I choose Tampa Bay Imaging. Two convenient locations, Pinellas Park in Tampa, 727-545-9674 and 813-386-3674. State-of-the-art equipment, I know these guys personally. Complimentary transportation. Insist on TBI Pinellas, 727-545-9674, 727-545-9674. Hillsboro, 813-386-3674, 813-386-3674. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology, our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments, call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2795. That's 727-771-2795.
3: Have you racked up more than $10,000 in credit card debt? Are you barely getting by making minimum payments? You should know the credit card companies are tricking you into thinking there's no way out right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Reduce a large portion of your debt now. Visit ndrnow.com. That's ndrnow.com. Go now to ndrnow.com. ndrnow.com.
2: They say you're nothing special that I should look around. But I say you're the greatest friend that I've ever found.
3: You know, to my dad, his car is a trusted friend. He's kept it running great for over a decade. Guess I'm a chip off the old cylinder block. Well, that's why we both choose to go to parts plus auto parts stores.
2: You never let that down, I'll take good care
3: of you. Hey, for all the reasons you love your car, there's parts plus
0: auto parts stores. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Daily mostly sunny and comfortable with a high 87. Tonight, clear skies and a low
1: 68. Tomorrow, warm with sun and some clouds, the high of the 89. Tuesday, partly sunny and pleasant, the high of the 88. Then on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, it'll be mostly sunny and very warm. The high each day will be 90. That's your accurate Forecast. I'm Dan Pittman for AM860, The Answer.
0: You're listening to an encore presentation of Dr. Bill, your radio MD, on AM860, The Answer.
1: Talking about our diplomacy and the upcoming diplomatic meet between Kim Jong un and President Trump and Mike Pompeo's trip over there. Uh, by the way, that's not the first time our country has sent someone secretively over to another country. Henry Kissinger actually went to China ahead of the Richard Nixon visit, and that was all in secrecy as well. And the diplomats paved the way, so to speak. Well, what, what's been our, our foreign policy since the end of World War One? Well, between World War One and World War II, uh, the country wanted to remain uh, pacifist and not involved. And of course, this was a good idea, but the problem was that the world was ramping up to go to war. And so then in the late, 1930s, we had to turn around and 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 do a whole different dance. So, between the end of the World War One and the late 1930s, non-intervention was our foreign policy. Uh, but then Franklin Roosevelt moved towards who was the president in the 30s and 40s during World War Two, moved towards strong support of the Allies. In their war against Germany and Japan, we didn't enter the war until 1941, and the war actually started a couple of years before that. We had been upset with the Japanese and had actually since the, the uh, end of World War I been trying to rein them in because of their colonial uh, interventions into northern China and the Korean Peninsula. They invaded the Korean Peninsula in the 1890s and started into Manchuria. And so we started cutting back on what we would sell them because they needed some of our raw material and supplies. This was part of the reason that the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor was because they were trying to decide if they should go further into Manchuria or if they should go into Southeast Asia where there were more resources like oil and rubber and metals and uh, timber and all the things that they needed at that time for their war machine. And so the Northerners wanted to stay out of it and the Japanese debate and the Southerners, who were the ones who wanted to go into Southeast Asia and to the Philippines and tap those areas for resources and slave labor, uh, they won. Part of the plan was that they would knock out the American Navy, and then the Pacific would be theirs. Well, it didn't work out quite that way for them. But I think that... The prescient and insightful leaders at the time saw that war was coming no matter what. At the end of the thirties, it was an inevitability that we were going to be in another world war and that our policy of non-intervention had only helped to strengthen Germany and the same with the British Neville Chamberlain. uh, He made a deal and he gave away part of Poland to the, To the Germans and the Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia and Austria and all these countries that that the Nazis marched into and just occupied pieces of land they just took over. And he said, this will bring peace in our time. (laughs) No, it didn't. It does not bring peace. Unfortunately, the idea that you can appease somebody who is hell-bent on conquering you by giving them something... Is a fallacy the only way you can do any good uh, the only way you can stop somebody like like Hitler uh, is to stand up to the bullies and it's not easy and it sometimes uh, leaves you with a few lost teeth and a black eye but even if you lose the fight if you get a few punches in that guy's gonna think twice the next time he comes to take a whack at you so The idea that we can pacify and do what Neville Chamberlain did before World War II is ridiculous. It doesn't work, especially when you're dealing with a mentality like Kim Jong-un. I mean, this is a guy who's been raised to believe that he is the crown of creation, so to speak, and that he's the uh, greatest ruler ever and that he has absolute authority and that he's almost godlike and – they have worked very hard in north korea to elevate this guy to a godlike level and the nazis did the same thing with with hitler that people were going crazy it was like the beatles had arrived when he came to give a speech and one person said i was cheering and crying and i don't even know what for because everybody else was doing it so it ain't gonna work folks we cannot appease uh, we have to stand up to these despots and say do what we want, play ball with us, or we're going to take you down a notch. So this has been our policy uh, th- off and on and throughout the Cold War. After World War II, the world split into the Russian camp, the Soviet camp, which was bent on the monotheistic philosophy, theology, uh, political ideology of communism. And, the United States and its free world partners who believe that democracy and self-determination and uh, open trade, uh, open markets was still the best way. And, of course, we won that war. And people will say, well, we had all these proxy wars and we really didn't win anything. Yeah, we did. The Russians went bankrupt. You know, we we outproduced them. We outgunned them. And people say, oh, you lost in Vietnam. We didn't lose in Vietnam. We walked out. Our kill ratio was 10 to 1. We flattened, and, and, and Vietnam is still a poor country, and now we're going back in and, and trying to uh, inject American money and American manufacturing into Vietnam and make it a more progressive and first-world country rather than a third-world country. That's our dollar diplomacy. You know, what's fascinating to me is that the Vietnamese, even though they had this big fight with us, would rather be our friend than the Chinese because their ancient and oldest enemy is China. So, I, I, you know, I think that diplomacy, especially dollar diplomacy in a situation like this, is healthy. And you, you think China is going to rise up and take over the world? She's surrounded by enemies, Vietnam, India, the Soviet, uh, the Russians, the uh, Koreans, the Japanese, the Filipinos. I mean, all these countries around China have been at odds with them for centuries. So I think that the Chinese are also realizing that what we're doing in the Korean Peninsula is in their best interest as well. They don't need to bump heads with all of us because they're not going to win that fight. So the diplomacy of the 1945 through 1970 era was strongly anti-communist and it supported wars in in the Korean peninsula in the fifties and Vietnam in the sixties and seventies, and then the, the Democratic party split and the pacifists got a hold and the in the 1972 presidential election with George McGovern running it, he was a dove and a lot of the young kids were backing him. And the, the Hawks were the people who aligned more with the Republicans, especially with the Goldwater-Reagan factions who said that, we have to remain strong, and even though we may have made a mistake in, in Vietnam, we certainly didn't make a, a mistake in, in Korea. And all you got to do is go to South Korea and see what our foreign policy of, of of intervention did to save democracy and save this this country of 50 million people from uh, uh, absolute tyranny and starvation. And they're a first world country. It's an amazing country. I love it. And that was because of the willingness of our foreign policy to be uh, militarily as well as economically intervening. Now, we've had this big debate since the Vietnam War, and the people on the far left are pacifist, supposedly, and internationalist and socialist. And basically, all of these things are not the basis of a good foreign policy. I don't think you need to be a war hawk, but you certainly can't be a pacifist. You can't be a pacifist. So our foreign policy has been geared, even by the Democrats, to be reluctant warriors that we don't want to use force if we don't have to. We'd rather talk to you and work it out. But we do have a responsibility to use our might Especially if we see partners, friends, fledgling democracies uh, and trading partners threatened by countries like North Korea, like regimes like the the despots in the Middle East. And you say, well, yeah, look, we went into Iraq and they're a democracy and basically they're now a satellite state of, of Iran, of the Persians because there are so many Shia Muslims, that's what the Persians are, in Iraq, that the Sunnis are going to be swamped and overwhelmed. Yeah, but they still have a democracy. They still get to vote for their their leaders, and they still have some decision, and the country is doing better. It's more prosperous. Our press doesn't tell us about that because it's not what they want us to hear, uh, but people are freer. Uh, there's more opportunity, there's more trade, there's more money, there's less fear of of being uh, uh, gassed to death by Saddam Hussein, or one of his henchmen, and they've kicked out ISIS, and we are there still, quietly, helping out as we can, and this is the beginning of a democracy in a part of the world where there have not been democracies. I think Israel and Tunisia are the only two real democracies there. And Now we have Iraq, a fledgling democracy. The Egyptians are trying their hand at democracy. And so it's working. What we're doing, the foreign policy that we have been following – Somewhat bumpy at times because one president doesn't want to intervene as much as another. Obama was uh, a little bit too reluctant. He's more of a pacifist and internationalist, although he did intervene some, just not to the extent that we would have liked. And, of course, that had the deleterious effect of What Chamberlain's diplomacy had in the late 1930s, his – Obama's unwillingness to intervene uh, more forcefully and more openly in the Middle East allowed ISIS to take uh, hold and to uh, cause havoc in that area for a decade and – kill thousands and thousands of people and rape thousands of women and destroy uh, history that went back 5,000 years. I mean, just a just really a, a sad situation all in all and not one that I uh, uh, appreciate. And, and I'm not going to say that Obama was intentionally a bad man. Uh, I don't know him personally. Uh, people say, what do you think of Obama? I said he was the president. I respected him, but I disagreed with just about everything that he did. And does that mean that I'm saying he's okay? That uh, he's a fellow human being? Yeah. Well, yeah, he is a fellow human being, and I think that part of what we have to project as uh, the country that is the torchbearer of individual liberty and freedom and democracy is to say that even though we disagree with the guy, we still respect him for what he he. Uh, aspired to and what he accomplished to become president. No easy feat and no easy job, whether you're uh, Woodrow Wilson or Donald Trump or uh, Richard Nixon or John Kennedy or uh, FDR. I mean, it's a tough position to be in, and we have to have respect. We need to voice our disagreement. We need to work very hard to fight the policies that people like Obama want to implement and try to implement. And I think we did a pretty good job of holding him in, in check. Uh, he snuck through that Obamacare bill, but even parts of that are are uh, of value, and we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And remember that because our Congress, our Senate has to ratify any treaty by, by two-thirds majority, we've rarely had any treaties. We've rarely had any treaties. It's not been until the, the past 50 years that we've had even a significant number, a few treaties that we've entered into. Trade agreements, yes, but the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, that was a rare event for us. We had a treaty with the British in the 1790s. We had a treaty with the Spanish after the Spanish-American War in the early uh, 20th century. Uh, we we have the NATO Treaty. Uh, so we've had a few treaties that we have signed over the two centuries that we have been around, but because of our checks and balances, we've been able to hold those to a minimum and to ensure that it is something that all of us can live with before we are willing to sign a document Uh, put our name as a people to it, because let's face it, the president doesn't represent the president. He represents us. He's our man. We put him there and he better do what we want or we'll vote him out. And Congress has to abide by our wishes ultimately as well. Uh, And it's not always easy to get him to uh, do what we want him to do, but we do. And uh, over time, it balances out. So the, International agreements that we have signed, uh, including arms control with the then Soviet Union, human rights treaties, environmental protocols, and free trade agreements, all these things have to be approved by the, by the uh, uh, Senate. But of course, these treaties, for the most part, have had to do not with helping someone else in a war that's what NATO is for, but in limiting war, in controlling the arms race, and in implementing human rights, and in demanding free trade agreements with countries around the world. Because as I said early on, the best way for us to effect change is to first open up trade. And we see this happening in China. And a lot of people said, why are we trading with these people? They are despots. They're there's no human rights there. There's Well, you know, there is now. I'm, I was surprised. I was really surprised. There are human rights there. I asked one of the guys, I said, everybody's so well-behaved. You know, people are so nice. He said, nobody wants to go to prison here because they're so terrible. But still, people spoke openly. They pursued jobs that they wanted. Uh, they had recourse to a court system. Certainly not anything like ours, but at least it's a step in the right direction. So the trade that we have had with the Chinese has changed the way they are, the way they live, the way they think, the way they eat, the way they breathe, what they listen to. And although the government in China is trying hard to block the Internet that the rest of the world has, uh, it's going to come there. It, it's it's an inevitability, just like it's an inevitability that what South Korea has is affecting North Koreans, especially those soldiers who are at the demilitarized zone and can see the South Korean soldiers and who can hear what's coming out of the loudspeakers every day and hear the sounds of the big city of Seoul. Uh, and hear all the vehicles and, and, you know, they can see they're not stupid. I mean, they're certainly ignorant. They've been kept in the darkness, but part of our mission is to bring people into the light. That's part of what we do. And so we want to continue doing that. We want to continue our foreign policy, which is a mixture of dollar diplomacy, as well as gunboat diplomacy, as well as moral diplomacy. And you say we should not be in a preemptive war, and people say that that we have no right to be bombing in Syria because we're not at war with that country. They haven't done anything directly to us. But again, I say that we have a moral obligation as well as a uh, an economic and a uh, trade obligation and – an obligation to push forward our ideals of democracy into the rest of the world. <clears throat> and uh, if you are a despot and you're killing your own people and they cry out for help, then I think we have a responsibility. Our response may not be the same with every country, because obviously if we had, uh, militarily intervened directly in the Soviet Union in the 1960s and 70s, we might have had a world war. So we had to be a little bit more circumspect, and that's okay. That's okay. At least we're making the effort. At least we're making the effort. We took everything uh, to the wire with the Korean and the Vietnamese War and some other minor wars like Grenada, proxy wars here and there. And, of course, there were a lot of covert actions going on. But it paid off. It paid off. And you say, well, the Soviet Union is already a bad boy again. You know what? At least they're talking to the rest of the world. They can travel. You can travel there. Uh, There's a, a dialogue going on. And they're not acting that much different than they acted 500 or 250 years ago. So it takes time. Everything takes time. Getting close to the end of the show. And I just wanted to say thank you.